Will you please join me in prayer? Beautiful God, we thank you that we have an opportunity to open our minds and hearts to your word. We pray that it would be your spirit that would illuminate our understanding. And not only that, Lord, but illuminate our passion and our desire to know you more. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. In 1983, uh, Lay's Potato Chips launched a campaign in which a gauntlet was laid down for each and every single one of us. Bet you can't eat just one. That's when that slogan began. It became a slogan that never dies, and, and also it became a slogan that inspired research by Harvard scientists. I wondered if you knew that we have a rewards center in the center of our brain, kind of like a target, right in the middle. And this rewards center, believe it or not, lights up like a Manhattan skyline when large amounts of fat and carbohydrates are introduced. Now, they've done research on rats and, and monkeys and all kinds of animals to figure out what it is about fats and carbohydrates. And no matter how they combine fats and carbohydrates together, nothing lights up that reward center like a potato chip, no matter what. Temptation is real, and we all know it. From the ridiculous, like eating just one more chip, to the disastrous of just one more drink, one more pill, one more credit card, one more loan from the expense account. Just open that website one more time, one more lie. And of course, temptation isn't unique to the modern world. We know that it's been a rather steady and faithful companion to the human condition for all times. In my worst moments of struggle, I, I'll have to admit to you that I have oftentimes said to God, maybe paraphrasing, lead me not into temptation, but I've often said, my Lord, you have highly overestimated my ability to resist. So now hold me tight and don't let me go and close every door and lock every window. I am my own worst enemy. That seems to be a prayer that I lift up occasionally. When Jesus felt that the time had come for him to begin his ministry, the first thing he did was to go out and to be baptized. And when he came up out of the water, a voice came from heaven saying, This is my son, my beloved. With him I am well pleased. And the very next words that we read in the scripture, after Jesus had been affirmed, as the Son of God, are the text that we are looking at today from Matthew 4, 1 through 11. This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. The tempter knows his Bible. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God, serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. The word of the Lord. So we have the Spirit descending on Jesus in baptism, and it's authorizing him to be the one, the Messiah, the one who had come, the one that had been prophesied, that they'd all been waiting for. The Spirit descended on him to come into this office in which he'd been called and been prepared for. And in a way, this was a day of coronation. This was a day in which the new king would be crowned, a king that would mediate God to the people and the people to God. So the question for the readers of the gospel in that time was, is this the true king? Is this the true Messiah? Because there had been those who had come before making the same claim. So the Spirit led him out into the wilderness where he was tested. Forty days in the wilderness ought to prove to those readers and those hearers of the gospel in Matthew that he really is the Son of God. You see, the time of, of uh, temptation is clearly a reflection of the 40 years that the Hebrew people spent wandering in the desert. In fact, most biblical scholars pay attention to the fact that Israel had faced each one of Jesus' trials during the wilderness wanderings. Not only the temptations were the same as the wandering people, in Exodus, but Jesus' response to every single one of these was taken from the Exodus experience. So Jesus fulfills and rewrites Israel's history. Jesus comes and is able to accomplish what Israel couldn't do. And he demonstrates a complete trust in God, and he remains faithful to God's call and God's purpose for him, unlike the ancient people were able to do. In the Old Testament, in Israel, in Hosea and Deuteronomy, were called the Son of God. Israel itself was called the Son of God. And this Son had failed all three tests. And Jesus demonstrates his worthiness to be the Son of God, responding to the tests with absolute faithfulness. The first temptation centers around hunger. Israel is wandering around in the desert, and they are hungry, and their children are hungry. And they begin grumbling against God. And God answers them and supplies them with manna. Jesus, who has been fasting for 40 days, refuses to give way to mistrust by exploiting the Spirit's power and demanding that 
that God intercede on his behalf. In other words, he waits on the Lord. He draws strength to resist temptation from Deuteronomy when he says, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes to the mouth of the Lord. Human beings possess life not because they consume bread, but simply because it's God's will that we live. Now, I want to make clear that later in Jesus' ministry, he clearly has a hard-line stance about feeding the poor, about meeting the physical needs of the people around us. He's concerned with those who are hungry. I mean, he fed 5,000 and then 4,000 and then a small girl that he raised from the dead. Give her something to eat. That was his first concern. So it's important to remember what this particular scripture is about. It's more than rumbling stomachs. Jesus faithfully remembers that he is totally dependent on God. In the second temptation, Jesus is taunted to test God. The Hebrews were going sour in their journey against God, and they wanted to prove that God was among them. They are like, is this what we get when God is with us? Is the Lord in our midst or not? That was what the question they placed before Moses in Exodus. And it challenges the Lord God to fulfill his covenant, which by that challenge makes them unworthy of that covenant. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy and says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. He refuses to leap from the temple and, and have God save him. And I don't think he refuses because he doesn't think that God can do anything. I don't think that he has any lack of faith in God's power and providential care, but I think honoring God excludes every kind of manipulation. And testing God is a manipulation. It's it's an effort on our part to make God do something in our time. Later, the Son of God will indeed leap straight headlong into the abyss because he believes and trusts in God even into death. The the temptation, the third temptation, is the heart and the foundation of our understanding of sin. It is a temptation of idolatry. Idolatry is taking your eye off the giver and lavishing the gift with all your praise and adoration and wonder. It's adoring and praising and worshiping that which has been created rather than the creator. And it's finding cheap and transitory replacement for all the wonderful and incredible only things God can provide. When Moses had gone on the mountain to receive the law and he'd been gone too long for their liking, what they did was they just threw all their gold in and fashioned for themselves something to worship. Now, it's, it's bad enough to worship an idol, but to worship an idol that you made yourself, which tends to mean they were placing their trust in themselves more than in God. And when confronted, Jesus, on the other hand, responds with the lesson from the ancient journey, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So Jesus was fulfilling and and accomplishing one by one all of those things that had been failed, that the, the children, the sons and daughters of God, 
the chosen ones, have been unable to do. And this assures us, when Jesus says this, of Jesus' undivided loyalty. It said to the readers and the hearers of that time, this is the one, this is the true Messiah. And just as the tests put before Jesus, recall the testing of Israel in the wilderness, so also these tests embody every temptation that you and I will ever come to face. Every temptation that human society will ever face or humanity will ever face. These temptations embody those. Will we trust God as Jesus did to supply our needs? Will we serve ourselves first? Will we use power for our own self-aggrandizement? Will we trust humans and human institutions to bring justice and peace and supply our needs? Whose power and what kind of power will we wield and will we choose to realize? And will we choose to worship? These are some of the ultimate questions that face all of us who follow Jesus and every congregation that seeks to be a part of the body of Christ in the world. And the same way we answer and live out those answers together, determine how we'll live in the world and what kind of witness we'll be able to bear in the world that is a world that succumbs to temptation day in and day out. I think that we are often tempted to distance ourselves from the experiences of Jesus. I, th I do. I think that we often hang the excuse out, well, I'm not Jesus. I'm not perfect. I'm not God. I can never do what Jesus did. The only problem is Jesus says, you'll do these and greater things. The only problem is Jesus says, follow me. The only problem is Jesus says, you are my body. The only problem is we don't get any of those excuses to be valid in our life. I think sometimes we're tempted to distance ourselves because we won't consider that the very same spirit that called out from the heavens, this is my son, the very same spirit that led Jesus out into the desert, that very same spirit that came sweeping into that upper room and bringing with it winds and fire like tongues of flames over people's heads and moved the foundations of destiny, that this is the very same spirit that rests in you and me and in this church. We say the story doesn't correspond with our experience. We don't hold conversations with the devil, nor are we whisked from place to place as Jesus was in this story. And we say that Jesus' temptations were peculiar to him, they're very remote from what we face today. What did Jesus know of the temptations that are faced by a recovering alcoholic? The temptations that are faced by a former addict or the very lonely divorced? The temptations by a struggling business owner to cut corners and to cheat? Or the teen that covets peer acceptance more than anything else? What what does Jesus know about those kind of temptations? But there is a common denominator among all temptations, including those of Jesus, that is common with us as well, is the very same temptation we each of us face. 
every single one of us and every single temptation we have or will ever face is the basic underlying temptation. The temptation to treat God as less than God. To regard God as having less, doing less, being less. I mean, we may not be tempted to expect bread from stones, but we're constantly tempted to question Jesus, to question God's intentions or care when things go wrong. None of us are likely to put God to the test by leaping off a building and hoping that he'll save us, but we are frequently tempted to mistrust God's readiness to empower us to face our own trials. And probably not too many of us are going to be worshiping a pagan god any more than Jesus was tempted to do that, but compromise with the way the world sees and thinks and judges and violates itself. Compromise with that. Compromise with, with our reality, God's reality. is a continuing seduction that we fall prey to. And it is, it is honestly hard to worship and serve God only. We do find ourselves drawn bit by bit, not oftentimes slam dunked, but just piece by piece of us drawn over to worship and put our energy someplace else to take our eye off of the Christ that walks across the water. And then we sink and I think that in that moment, we hear ourselves say, Lord, you have highly overestimated my ability to resist this. Close the door, lock the windows, hold me tight. We are our own worst enemy. It's then, I think, that this story begins to take life. I think that in those moments, this story begins to seep into our bones and we remember that this Jesus, this Jesus who didn't even have the story of victory that he would represent for us, who was able to overcome, to remember that we don't bear the burden of any temptation on our own. We're not left, it's not willpower. It's not about willpower. It's about relying on God, leaning over on God to be able to desire and look for the best life so that we might live our best life with our best selves. There is one who's gone before us, who fulfilled his commitment to the end, who overcame every temptation and cleared the way for us to do the same. And this one, this Jesus, has the strength and provided us with that same strength that keeps us moving forward, that keeps us able to overcome every obstacle and to overcome every temptation, not because we have strong willpower, but because God is able. God makes it possible for us to resist temptation, to fulfill our commitment. This Jesus who wandered in the desert for 40 days. Amen.